Brandon's here to preach for us this morning, and I've been looking forward to it, loving with all my heart. We've been trying to work this out, and it's been a long time coming, but uh, brother, I'm ready for it. Come on up. In 45 seconds, because I can't count well, I'm going to ask you all to do something that I call Baptist fire drill. What that means is you're going to turn to the person next to you, and you're going to have 60 seconds to share the gospel. So now you got 25 seconds left to prepare. So I'm telling you that this is what you're doing. And you know what? We'll start early, like a pop quiz. Ready? Go. You have 45 seconds. Just about 30 seconds. <laughs> 15 seconds. Five. How'd you do? 
You know, I, I, I started doing that years ago after I saw a guy named Mark Deaver do it. And the reason that he did it was because that is something every Christian should be able to do. And yet not every Christian can do it. And I don't do it to bring attention to it. What I do it for is one, evangelism. It is the gospel message being told in the pews. But part two is so that it is always clear that what happens here in the bringing of the word of God is gospel-centric. That the goal here, and as every scripture points to, is Jesus Christ died for the remission of our sins. What is sin? It is a falling away from God's standard of holiness. At the beginning when God created man, we ourselves were in relationship, but we sought to define the terms. That's sin. Therefore, God, through his covenants, made a way pointing to a savior, leading all of Israel and all of mankind to a son, Jesus Christ. He died on a cross at the hands of pagans, crucified, buried, and rose again, offering forgiveness, belief, faith to all who will accept him as their savior. And one day he will return. Amen. That's the gospel. Amen. In 60 seconds, that's the gospel. Why does it matter here? Because sometimes we forget that this is a training ground. Most of the time, this is feel good circle, and it should be. What this shouldn't be is the only time the gospel is shared. If at 11 o'clock to noon on a Sunday morning is the only time in your life where the gospel is coming from you, there's a problem. And I also want to encourage you to realize that what is happening here is for us, not the world. I think missionary Baptists, having been one my whole life, have this tendency to be in the Billy Graham evangelist meeting camp. And we run our Sunday mornings like it's that. Where we extend an invitation to the lost and praise the Lord, God will save those whom he will save. But I want you to understand what we do here is for building up disciples. That's it. If the only time the gospel is being shared is an altar call at the tail end of a sermon, my friends, our evangelism is not helpful. It's not effective. It's weak. What we are doing here is something that the world can't create. The world can pitch. The world can sell. We are in the ministry of making disciples. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to have a clear vision of what that looks like. Focused on the good news of the gospel. We're not separating the gospel from discipleship. But I want to be sure that we understand the goal of the church. So grab your Bibles. Open up to chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. We'll read verses 1 through 9. But we will be jumping at a couple different points. And let's stand and read this. Let's stand. This is the Word of God. Let's stand. Now these are the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you. That you might do them in the land where you go to possess it. That you might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, you and your son and your son's son all the days of your life and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it that it may be well with you and that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you in the land that flows with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently unto your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in their house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them upon the posts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of God. It is good for Israel and his people. It is good for us. Let's have a seat. If you wouldn't mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless our time in scripture. 
By your word, God, are we made new. And by your word, God, are we transformed into the image of your son. So I ask now, Lord, that you hide me behind the cross. And that may we be seeking you first. That we may have ears to hear and a heart that is softened by your spirit alone. In Jesus' name, amen. I kind of feel like I got off of a plane. Uh, I went to Alaska this summer. That's why the beard's here. And uh, about a 12-hour, 10-hour, 12-hour flight. And by the end of it, when we got off, I felt like I could run a marathon just because I'd been cramped in an airplane seat and coach for uh, the entire time. Didn't even stand up, which I know people say is not good. It's kind of how I feel this morning. I haven't preached since June of this past year, so I feel like I've got a lot to say. But don't worry, I'm not going to preach a marathon, I assure you. But I am very thankful that Bobby asked me to preach, and I want to do that well. What we read in the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon. It's the last book of what's called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch meaning five. These five books of Moses were set up so that Israel would know who they are. Their history, Genesis. Their deliverance, Exodus. The standard of holiness that God calls his people to in Leviticus. The journey and the judgment of rebellion that Israel did in Numbers. And then Moses gives this last series of sermons or second law, commentary on the law, the book of Deuteronomy. These are his sermons. At the end of this book, Moses is going to say, I know what's going to happen to you. You are going to turn from God. You're going to turn from the covenant that I made with you and with your fathers. And you are going to be exiled out of the land that God wanted to give you. I can guarantee you it's going to happen. Why does Moses say that? It's not like he's looking into a crystal ball. He's been with these people for 40 years. He knows them. He knows their weaknesses. He knows their tendencies. He knows their heart. And he knows what awaits them in this land that God promised. He knows where they're going to go. And so he puts them in remembrance of the covenant they made with God at Sinai. And God said clearly, if you do not obey what I have told you to, you will be exiled out of the land. But just like the rest of the Bible, Moses lays claim to the same promise God made in Genesis. That there is coming a savior. And your hearts are going to need to be made new, not better, not more knowledgeable, new. Born again. And that is the promise that's awaiting Israel. They're waiting for a savior. They're waiting for a better Moses. Here, in these verses, this second sermon, we see basically Moses is now explaining the Ten Commandments in this specific section. This section here is going to focus mainly, as you can guess, on you shall have no other gods before me. No idols. And how he says it is what I want to focus on. It's one of the most uh, fundamental parts of the Jewish faith. I know you're saying I'm not Jewish. That's okay. We got a lot in common with them. And what we hear starting in verse 4 is a daily prayer that the Jews would make twice a day. It's called the Shema. And the Shema says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They would say this two times a day, and to the best of my knowledge, some still do, as a prayer and as a reminder of what they're called to. Jesus says that this is one of the greatest commandments. He's going to use it in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 17. And he references as saying, there's one other. Love your neighbor as yourself, for this, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. Doing this, starting with how we know God and what we view God or who we see God to be, has everything to do with us responding. So let's break down this verse. Here, 
The word literally means Shema. So that's why it's called the Shema. It's found elsewhere in Scripture, in the Psalms. You know, when David calls out, says, hear me, O God, and answer my prayer. What he's saying is, Shema, O God, listen. Hear, O Israel, listen. Yahweh, our God, is one Lord. And maybe your translation, if you're using the ESV or another translation, just says, is one. Yahweh is repeated, or repeated there at the end of it as the name of God. It doesn't take anything away from it. But what it's suggesting is that, listen, Israel, Yahweh, whom he has revealed himself to be, is single, alone. Now, you see one and us being a Trinitarian faith. What does that mean? That we believe in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, none of which are any less God than the other. We get that mixed up sometimes. The Son is sent by the Father. The Son sends the Spirit, as we just sang. That does not mean any one of them is less God or less important. Genesis says the same word when we see the one. It's this unity is what that word means if you want to circle it. The one represents the same type of union or singleness as a husband and wife in covenant. It's unified. It means one flesh. That what we're seeing Moses tell Israel is, listen, Yahweh is one with himself. If that makes sense. If you want to spend any time on the Trinity, you better be careful. And you better have a lot of people around you who are willing to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because it's very quickly possible that you might be saying something against the character of God himself. That is wrong. And anything that is against the character of God that is not exactly as the Bible has revealed him to be is a heresy. And we do really well whenever we want to say the Holy Spirit, you can feel it to bite our tongues. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. We must have a correct vision of who God is for the purpose of ministry. And that is what I'm hoping to show you. Hear, O Israel. But that word here, Shema, what's different about it is it's not just saying, hey, y'all, listen, I got something to say. And it's not the same listening as if anyone that has ears will just hear it. It's not a megaphone type announcement. It's not the the announcer at a football game giving score updates and tackle updates. That's not what it is. Hear the word hear literally is a call to listen and respond. It's not just recognizing or accepting that the message has been received. The word here requires something of the audience. It is an expectation that when this word is said, something is going to be done because of the truth of the message. Are you following? Shema, O Israel. Hear what? Hear who God is. It starts there. Now, in the whole context of the passage... What we're being commanded to, what Israel is being commanded to, is obedience. Go to verse 1 as we read. These are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land where you go to possess. First thing, that they are to obey what God has said to do in every form. So somehow hearing and obedience are tied together in listening. When you hear the word of God, Israel's expectation was they were then to obey what God told them to do. And it wasn't stopping at just hearing that you, verse 2 of chapter 6, you might fear Yahweh, your God, to keep all his statutes And his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your son's son, all the days of your life, that your days might be prolonged. 
The phrase there at the end, that your days might be prolonged, specifically calls them to when you get in the land of blessing, of promise, if you want to stay there, here's what you have to do. Obey God and fear Him. Those are the expectations of when we listen. That is how we respond in obedience. And as you know the history of Israel, you know that they were not obedient. And what do we see happening to them? Exile. Exactly what God said would happen to Israel. From the mount, from the moment of Sinai, this covenant-cutting ceremony. Smoke, thunder, fire. For a month, Moses is removed from the people and God is giving the law. Written on stone tablets. This is what God has brought them out of Egypt to do. To worship. That's how God says it to Moses. Bring my people to this mountain that I'll show you that you may worship me there. And what is worship? Obedience to God's commands. And as soon as Moses comes down, what have they done? Violated law number one. And it's great how it's worded too. We're studying Exodus uh, in our Bible study that Alice and I attend. And it's kind of funny when you see Aaron say, I put gold earrings in the fire and out jumped the calf. If you're not familiar with the passage, it's in the latter part of Exodus. I invite you to read it. But it, what it's saying is that I don't know how this happened. It just showed up. And Aaron's the one orchestrating the entire thing. He's the one putting, saying, bring your earrings to me. We're going to put them in here. What should have been used for the, or, for the tabernacle, give me your earrings. I'm going to make a calf for us because that is how we can worship the God that delivered us. We'll make him a golden calf. See, obedience and fear must directly submit to what God said you do obey and you do fear. That means when you try to worship, when you say you can worship God or obey God in a way that is contrary to what he directly said, my friend, you are guilty of idolatry. You're creating God in a way that he has not revealed himself to be. You have forgotten who Yahweh is. He is not a God that we can make in our image. He is a God that has revealed himself specifically in revelation of scripture. There are no secrets. There is no mystery of how we must worship God. He has called us to hear and respond in obedience and fear. But this is a living God. Forget that. No way. No, Peter confesses it. Peter says when Jesus says, who do you say? I I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, you want to make God of the Old Testament, the one that gave this, the one that told Israel to go into Canaan and kill every man, woman, and child that were idolaters. You want to make that the old God. We want it to be easier to focus on the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus and neglect the justice of the Old Testament. And it's hard. Again, I'm not trying to say that it is easy to reconcile that judgment But rather than us say the God of the Old Testament of the Sinai has gone away and we have this new Jesus God that's all love and mercy and grace. It's true. Praise the Lord for it or else I would never be saved. But we cannot divorce God's holiness from the love and the mercy that Jesus showed. It's the same. It's the same God. You can do, say whatever you want to about grace. Paul addresses that pretty clearly. But my friends, the minute you use grace as an excuse to be an idolater of golf, your schedule, your money. You are worshiping God in a way that he has clearly said not to. And you are an idolater. And God is clear what the consequence of idolatry is. It's destruction. It's death. It's serious. We have to fear the God that said, listen. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That word love there here in the Hebrew 
has something to do with the idea of a conscious choice that is comprehensive. So when we are called to love, it's not agape, that's a Greek word. This is a specific love that says, with all that I have, I will show my love for whomever. The word appears a lot. Here, it's tied directly to Yahweh. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That we don't separate our devotion to God from any other element of our lives. That it's not a 11 to noon thing. That it's not a my money, my life thing. I I heard that a lot in in pastoral ministry. I I would hear this. Well, God expects you to have a life. I mean, we have to go about our business. We have to do things. As a matter of fact, I heard of a pastor one time who said, I have to have a life. And I understand where he was getting at. And he tenured his resignation because I just don't have time for anything else that I want to do. I think that comes from us not having a correct understanding of Christ centralness. We, we put lists together just like we did with the Holy Spirit. We create these little like God here, then family, then America, then football, right? Like that, that's, that's our list, okay? We do that. And what that sin or symboling is that we have like priorities here. And, and I get it. I, I'm not one to try to like, you know, strain over a gnat in our wording. But that's not what Jesus is saying how we should love him. That's, that's not the call of love that we see here. It is because of who God is, I will love my family and my wife this way. It's because God is Yahweh, I trust him with my money to be a steward of what he has given knowing it's not mine anyway. It's because that God has or who God is that I will play or compete or perform or do my job to the best of my ability. You doing your job in a Christian sense does not mean you have a crucifix in your cubicle. It means you show up on time. It means you keep your word. It is central. It is your integrity. It's that you are willing to sacrifice before the throne every element of your life because you realize who God is and that he has called you to obedience and to fear. It's his. It's his. It's not a priority thing. It's a because of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what's interesting to me. What follows Moses in the because of who God is sermon is teaching. Now read this, and don't miss it, and hang with me. The Lord tried to show us the bigger picture. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words, which I command you this day, shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently unto your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Unlike the pagan idol worshipers in Canaan, in Babylon, in the rest of the world, in Assyria, they were not to have this time of devotion and then go back to their lives. Israel, the people of God, were called to a comprehensive lifestyle of obedience and fear that affected every single element of their lives. Nothing was separated from it. You didn't have temple time and then your life. God is saying here that when you wake up, you're telling your children of the mighty works of God. And it's not like it's just a conversation where we sit down and have Bible study 24 hours a day. That's not what's happening here. They're doing life. They're they're, they're literally going about their life together in Christian unity and showing what God has done. Teaching. What teaching? We're going to find that out here in just a little bit. But that teaching is not just classroom teaching like we might expect. We sit around a table and open up our Bibles, which is good and has a place. But in the life of God's people, this is a community activity. This, is, this isn't just isolated to, well, they go to my church. In God's people, 
there were times where the community would raise the children as much as you did. It was not just this uno individual mentality. It was so much more big picture, community, like other people that are part of this. When you walk, by the way, think of the caravans that Israel would walk in. Kids would be running around. That's what happened to Jesus, right? Mary and Joseph, parents of the year, they lose their kid. And it's because they think on the caravan, he's just up ahead. That's normal. That's typical. They trusted them. I would hope in the people of God there would be that same level of trust that we can say, I have as much of a vested interest in teaching the children or the newer believers about what God has done as anybody. You don't have to go it alone. That's a blessing. God's commands are a blessing. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Read the end, Revelation that this is also flipped, where this antichrist, law, man of lawlessness, whatever you want to call him, is going to use this in his favor. He's going to be an imitator of the truth of the scriptures and the, what God has done. You see, the Pharisees have done the same thing when Jesus shows up. He literally makes a mockery of them that they would wear these massive, I forget the name of them, or something along those lines, where it's scriptures on top of their forehead. So as they're walking, it would swing and knock them in the head, look just like Bobby did just a little bit ago. It's the same idea there. That that is what is twisted about the scripture. God does not want us. It's the same idea of a crucifix in the crucible, or in the in your. Uh, it might be a crucible for you, but it's a cubicle. <laughs> God does not want you just to have this crucifix in your locker, in your place of work. It is a constant reminder of who God is and what He has commanded you to do. That it is ever present on our minds and our hearts. Constantly, in our hands, what we do, what we think, what we see. It's on the doorpost of our house. As we go, as people come in, this is constant. And it is a constant teaching to our children. Why? And it shall be when the Lord God has brought you into the land which he swore unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you great and goodly cities which you didn't build, and houses full of all good things which you didn't fill, and wells digged in which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant, when you shall have eaten and be full, then beware lest you forget the Lord which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Do you see the purpose? The purpose is the same reason we have communion. The purpose is we could forget what God has done. That is the danger that Moses is preaching against, is forgetting who it was that delivered Israel. Jump over in verse 20. And when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what does it mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say unto your son, we were Pharaoh's bondmen. We were their slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us into the land which he swore unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness, note this at verse 25, please, if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he hath commanded us. What is righteousness? It is obedience to what you have heard. And teaching comes in because it is easy for us to forget what God delivers his people from. For Israel, it was slavery. For us, what is the purpose of teaching others 
what God has done, how easily we entangle ourselves into the yoke of sin we once were under. It is so easy for us to forget the sin condition you and I were once in. We forget it all the time. How do we forget it? We run back to it. We literally go straight back to what God has said I have freed you from. What did Israel do? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Didn't we have figs and olives in Egypt and slavery? (laughs) We do it all the time. We literally run back to the things that God has freed us from. Why? Because we don't teach each other and remind each other daily what God has truly done. We forget. Do you remember your alcoholism? Do you remember your idolatry? Do you remember your gossip? Do you remember your pride? What good ever came from it? And what's funny is this. That is not what God is saying to remind you of. That's what Satan does. He accuses you with what you did in the past and says, you, how could God save you? That's not what God tells his people to remind you of. What God says to remind the believers of is what he has done. Alone. Reminds you of what God has done daily. Every day. Be encouraged. Lest there be in any of you a heart that's easily deceived and gets snared by sin. And then that generates a heart of unbelief. See, two things can happen. One, the believer isolates themselves because they're saved. Saved, hooray, heaven. They isolate themselves because they got that insurance policy and they wrote it at the front of their Bible. That way they can say for sure, here it was. You wrote it. You chose to be saved. Do you see that? What you're really doing is stealing glory from God in that moment. I hope you know that. Anytime you want to say you did something to be saved, you are stealing the glory of a gracious God who did everything. Amen. To deliver you. Moses did not separate the waters. Moses did not call his people out of Egypt. God did. Amen. Left alone, Israel would still be in Egypt. You were dead. That's what the Bible teaches us about our sin nature. You were dead. You couldn't make a choice. You couldn't hunger for righteousness. You couldn't thirst after godliness. None of it. God delivered you by the quickening work of his spirit. And in his spirit freed you from the bondage of sin that so easily entangles. That is what you must remind each other of every single day. But we don't. We don't. We isolate ourselves because we have heaven. Or the other side of it. We as a corporate body don't remind each other of that because we decided to make the church look like a corporate event instead of a training ground for believers to be strong, steadfast, immovable, lacking in nothing, like a tree planted by waters, everlasting waters. Instead, we have meetings about what the theme of VBS is going to be. We spend our time trying to figure out if we want to have a handshake at the end of our sermons. We spend our our deacons meetings moving monies. And none of our moving of monies reflect a need in reminding people of what God has done. When was the last time you had a meeting about who Jesus was? When was the last time? I get it, okay? For those of you who don't know me, I pastored. I get it. I'm not bringing or making hyperbole after the things that have to happen within a church. But I will say this. We spend the majority of our time focusing on things that are going to go away at the return of Jesus Christ. 
We spend the majority of our time trying to sell something, refine a product that God never needed us to. Instead of reminding each other of what God has done. That's in here. My friends, if you were unable to share the gospel in 60 seconds, after being in a church that preached the gospel for your lifetime, don't you find that kind of odd? What we're doing here is real. If you're saying this is Old Testament, I'd like to read out of 2 Timothy, another I'm dying sermon. Paul's last letter to a young man that he has entrusted with his life's work, the work of the ministry. Here's what he says. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And here's the verse. This is the verse that should shape our reach out programs. This should shape our women's meetings, our men's prayer groups, our Sunday school Bible studies, what's being preached in the pulpit, what's being sang in corporate worship. This is it. And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. What is Paul calling Timothy to? Before he goes to meet the Lord, to be poured out as a drink offering, he fought the good fight, he's run the race, and what is his last admonition? Teach Others of the grace of Jesus Christ and what he has done to make you strong and steadfast and immovable. A good soldier able to endure. You see, it's not because you've got weaklings in the pool or in the pews. It's because they don't have anything to hang on to with fingernails gripping the word of God because they've never heard it. They're not reminded of what God did in Israel. The reason they fall away and they succumb to hardship is because they don't know what Jesus has really done. That matters. You want to make disciples? Get them in the word of God. That's how you change a church. That is what the church should be focused on. Make believers. Make disciples. And point them to the grace that is ever present. That old time way. The old time way that they used to preach about and say had nothing to do with a mourner's bench and a coal burning stove at the front of this pulpit. It had everything to do with a savior. A savior who came to fulfill Everything we couldn't fulfill. Remind each other of that daily. Men especially. That's what the scripture speaks to. We're really good at giving each other a hard time. We're really good at that. We are not encouragers. It's easier for us to be insulated. It's easier for us to just, you know, rather than say what God has done. Let's not be that way. Let's be God's people. Let's be the church.